the ad hoc committee about was whether or not outdoor suspension is necessary when you could do this indoors to make sure that there's some type of authority over this child, even during the period of time this child is in suspension, while he could be doing, you know, uh, in detention and doing his schoolwork versus saying, okay, we are kicking you out of school because you've been unruly in school, and therefore you have absolutely nobody watching over you now. You have no role models around you to try to, you know, give you any type of corrective, corrective instruction on your behavior. To me, it's like, you know, uh, 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 you know, a big mistake on the part of the school system. There has been a number of conduct, you know, a number of times kids are arrested and they put these spars in their reports, in their, in their records, case in point. There was a kid that was featured on the news in Miami-Dade County who was alleged, and it was, well, he's a juvenile, so I won't mention his name, but he was alleged to have uh, gone into Miami-Kale City Senior High and sprayed graffiti all over the place. <laughs> Turns out that his mother went to school with me. And she came to my office. Actually, she was a few years younger, so she went to school with my brother. Uh, but she went to the same high school, and she came to me, and she said, this is not my son. Okay, the person who did it had a mask on. I said, this is not my son. And he did not do this, Rod, and I can tell you he did not do it, because if you look at the videotape, the guy's uh, more stockier than my, my son, and the guy that's on the video is left-handed, my son is right-handed. And sure enough, I looked at the videotape and the guy spray painting writing with his left hand. And so my client says, listen, you know, I, I came in to represent him. And, you know, I contacted the state attorney's office and they said, Rod, we will call in the officers. We will look at the videotape and we'll look at the evidence again. And they did. And they decided to say, you know what, we agree with you. This could not be him. And they did not file any charges. But the problem was is that this kid had been suspended because, from school as a result of those allegations. And so he ended up with this spar in his, in his, uh, and his school records, and I, you know, got the, uh, the school board to agree to take this out of his file. I said, because this will affect him when he applies to college. And they were like, well, no, 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 it won't because colleges aren't allowed to know anything about this. I said, no, those have changed. It used to be a time when you would go and seek a job, and they used to ask you back when I was a kid, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Okay? And then it changed to, have you ever been convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony? And then it changed to, have you ever even been arrested? Or have you ever had a case where it was expunged? So they start getting more in-depth with regard to what they're asking you, and it's just a matter of time before colleges start asking you, have you ever been disciplined or suspended from school, you know, based on misconduct? And this kid would have to say yes, even though it wasn't him, you know, and so you had an arrest of a child, you know, that was premature, okay? They, they, because of a tweet that he sent out being foolish, they turned all attention towards this kid, just to later find out that it wasn't him. And so one of the things that the state attorney has is a screening process, all right? The felony screening and misdemeanor screening process whereby they are required to pre-file these cases before they make the decision to charge you. In some situations, not in all, but in some situations. Mr. Vereen, and, I, um, want, I just want, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have a line of callers, and, okay. I want, and I want to jump to the next question, but I applaud you in giving all this information to our listeners because I think they need to hear your position. I have Kathy on the line. Kathy, can you shoot the question to us? Yes, I can. Uh, and I applaud you as well, and it sounds like uh, you really understand the challenges ahead of you. I, I pose another challenge to you. If, the, the, if you get elected a state attorney and you sit on the board or you designate uh, your people to sit on the board of all these different non-profits, don't you think there are a lot of conflicts of interest by doing that? Well, which, well there can be uh, uh, conflicts of interest depending on which, which 
they're, you know, they are. Um, you know, but, you know, with all conflicts of interest, the state attorney has a, a, do, a duty and an obligation to make sure that there isn't, in, you know, any conflicts of interest and that they are, then you have to remove whatever, you know, you have to stop putting people on certain boards. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which ones you're making reference to. Um, but, you know, one of the things that the state attorney office always has to do is make sure there's not the appearance of impropriety. Um, but, you know, with regard to, say, for instance, um, you know, there's a board that deals with, you know, certain areas of, of the law, okay? And, you know, you, the job, of, of course, is to stay, uh, as a, of the state attorney to make sure you're prosecuting uh, individuals. And so if there's a, a board of an agency, an organization that you're making reference to, I mean, if you, if you, you know, state which one you're making reference to, I could probably respond better than I am now. Um, but no, the thing is to make sure you always make sure there's no conflict of interest. If you believe that there might, well, then you, what you do is you ask the attorney general, Pam Bondi, or whoever the attorney general will be at the time, <clears throat> to render an opinion for you as to whether or not there exists a conflict of interest. And if there is, then, you know, you have to step down off that board. Thank you. Jackie, um, you have a question for Mr. Vereen. Yes, thank you. Although the new Safe Harbor Act was meant to increase... I, I, I'm sorry, I Wait, can't hear. Jackie, can you speak up a little? Yes. Although the new Safe Harbor Act was meant to increase penalties for trafficking cases, they're mostly still only being charged with kidnapping and other related fines. If, you're, if you are elected state attorney, how will you address this? Were you able to hear that, Mr. Vereen? I heard... Uh, if you, the New Safe Harbor Act... Sure, of course. The New Safe Harbor Act has um, brought forth uh, higher penalties to the uh, sex... to charging sex trafficking um, traffickers themselves. If you are elected, how would you go about charging traffickers instead of using kidnapping and other peripheral charges? Let me tell you that, and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad she asked that question. Do you know that already that there is a federal task force uh, that deals with the sex trafficking? And there's always a relationship with the state and the feds concerning uh, the investigation of, of these type of cases. Usually the sex trafficking cases, the, the web of individuals involved are usually a lot larger than, you know, this, 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 some, some of this stuff is organized. And it's everything from pornography to, you know, uh, uh, to pimping out children. And one of the things that I would like to do is have a relationship with the federal authorities because of the penalties, you know, I like the penalties in federal court more so than I do in the state court system, okay? And because they have what they call specific offense characteristics uh, with regard to the, the federal system. In other words, the age of the children, the number of children, um, you know, whether or not they were crossing lines, uh, when I say uh, interstate uh, trafficking of these kids, the penalties are so much higher. And and while, you know, I'm confident that the state authorities can prosecute these cases equally as well, I'm, I'm, I'm more confident, if you will, that uh, when it comes to the federal system, that you have more individuals that, you know, will end up doing a life sentence than they will in state court. Um, and so I would like to see a lot more of these cases actually prosecuted in the federal court system versus the state court system, even though it may be, you know, uh, the individual may have been arrested by state authorities, you can, we can easily transfer it to the federal court so that person ends up getting a life sentence, okay? Um, you know, we have similar, you know, situations with gun laws. A person gets 
caught with a gun. A person who is not supposed to have one, a convicted felon, gets charged in state court with possessing a firearm by a convicted felon. It's unheard of that that person would do 15 years in state court. It's not going to happen. Judges are, are sentencing them to that even when they go to trial and they're found guilty. But guess what? There's 15 years minimum mandatory in the federal system, you see. And so they're going to do 180 months in the federal system if they're caught with a gun. And so you see a lot more cases being transferred to the federal authorities, or the federal authorities come in and say, well, you know what, this person is not only a person in possession of a farm, but they also deal drugs, so we're going to take this case away from you, and we're going to ask that you relinquish jurisdiction. And the, and the state authorities say, you know what, that's fine, because you're going to get more time than what we would get. Okay? So when it comes to abusing children, I have no problem whatsoever speaking with the U.S. attorney and saying, listen, we want to transfer this case to your jurisdiction because we know when it's prosecuted, this person will more likely than not get life in prison. Okay? And so I think it gets the message out to those that are out there trafficking those kids that more likely than not, even if you're arrested by the authorities, by the local authorities, this case is going to end up in the federal system and you're going to end up doing a lot, lot more time in prison in federal court than you will in state court. Fantastic. I think Sarah has a question for you. Yes, Mr. Vereen, how can the state attorney's office cut back on waste of taxpayer dollars? Well, let me tell you. Um, as you know, at this time, there's about, uh, well, uh, the taxpayers pay about $107 a day for per- every person that's incarcerated. All right? And that's just at the state level. And when I say the state level, I mean locally. When it gets to the federal system uh, or when it gets to the prison system, they pay a lot more than that because, you know, we pay for your medical expenses and everything else. Um, what needs to happen is that there are a number of continuances in the state system, you know, that just go on and on and on and on. And a lot of times defense lawyers do it as tactics uh, because, you know, in the death penalty case, you know, you don't want to rush it. You want to take as long, you know, take as much time as you can as a defense attorney because uh, witnesses disappear, uh, uh, you know, police officers and other witnesses, you know, their, their memories go, they can't recall what, you know, what took place six years ago. And so it's a delaying tactic that defense lawyers use in a lot of cases to wait till evidence lines up better in their favor. Prosecutors' job, when you, when you follow information, you should be ready to go. Because you know when the statute of limitations is running. You know, we have in state court, we have, for the most part, when I was a prosecutor, we had open file. We didn't hide things the way some of the prosecutors try to do in this in, in Miami-Dade County. They give you, you know, limited, you know, discovery, and which drags cases on, you know, day after day after day, week after week, month after month, sometimes year after year. And every time that happens, every delay, for every delay, Say there's 30 days of delay, then you, we just picked up another, you know, four to five thousand dollars in taxpayers paying for this person to be incarcerated pending trial. So fiscal responsibility, so when prosecutors walk into the courtroom, they are, they're ready to announce ready for trial. You know, it would delay the amount of time that the person is waiting to go to trial, so taxpayers don't have to pick up that tab, okay? And that's one of the main things that is causing taxpayers to have to pay so much. Secondly, we spend a lot of time dealing with drug users versus drug dealers. And I, and, I, and I complain about this all the time, that we are spending too much time incarcerating people that have social problems. When we could put them in programs and make them pay for it themselves. Okay, we have what we call the advocate program that they have to pay, uh, you know, something like $250 mm-hmm. to enroll in, and it's a, it's a pretrial diversion type of program. We can create drug court, which, which we have now, which allows individuals to be enrolled in that when they have drug problems. We need more than one drug court. We need other programs that are dealing with nonviolent offenders who have drug problems, okay, that can afford to pay, because you have some that actually are, 
you know, what we call functional drug addicts that have jobs, okay, and versus sitting there, putting them in jail and the taxpayers are paying for that, let them be on community control, let them be on house arrest, let them be on probation, be involved in, you know, AA or NA or some other type of uh, program that allows them to continue to work but pay for their own rehabilitation so the taxpayers don't have to do that. And leave the jail cells for the violent offenders, these uh, uh you know, these these folks that are committing mass fraud, you know, and then, you know, and, and those type of criminals versus the ones that we are cur- uh, in, incarcerating right now. Mr. Vereen, elaborating a little bit further on that, because you have been on both sides as prosecutor as well as a public defender, can you tell our listeners, please, how you believe your career defending accused criminals will influence your style as a state attorney? Well, one of the things that I have learned as, uh, you know, being a defense attorney is where the problems lie in the community, uh, especially with regard to septic sites, okay. how it is that these, well, and let me just re, uh, define what I call septic right. sites, crack houses, uh, brothels, um, you know, all areas where crime breeds, okay? Because as the defense attorney, your clients are telling you how they're operating out there. You, you get to know the inner workings of these drug trafficking organizations. And all, you know, you get, so you get to know where they're operating, how they're operating, okay? And as a, as a prosecutor, now I have this, I'm armed with this information and I know how to take down organizations, okay? With regard to these septic sites, these crack houses, what we see happening in the state court system is this. You go in and you arrest the person that's selling the drugs in this house, but you allow the house to remain there. You allow the owner to still occupy this house. In the federal system, what you see are forfeiture provisions almost at the end of every indictment. Okay, we're going to take this, we're going to take that, we're going to take this, because we know that you purchased these pro- uh, purchased this, uh, this building with these proceeds. So the feds are all in, all, all in favor of taking away everything that they can identify that you've obtained through illicit proceeds. The state court system is not doing that. They need to start attacking the property that these, the, the, these individuals own. You have a lot of slumlords who are out here who have these older buildings, these, these apartment buildings, especially, you know, in one particular area in Miami-Dade County in Overlocker. Okay? Everybody lives in their Section 8. And most of the people that occupy them are, the, are, the, are women who then have, with no criminal histories, but they're letting these guys who have extensive criminal histories live in there with them in violation of Section 8. And they're using these apartments to sell drugs and to commit all other types of crimes and is going undetected because the police don't know what they're looking at. And even when they do, they're not given the proper backing that they need from the state attorney's office to stop this from happening. Well, if you go in there and you say, you know what, we're going to have a notice requirement, okay? If you are a renter and you say you're a landlord and you are renting to somebody that is selling drugs out of your uh, uh, building or out of one of your units, then we're going to have some reprocessing of eviction, okay? Well, this person is automatically evicted. And they'll be given their 30-day notice. They can come and try to fight it if they want to. But all they got to do is prove that they've been arrested. That's probably called to evict them. They're out of there. Okay, and Section 8 already has that, but you cannot even be a convicted felon living in Section 8. But we see this happen all the time. So that needs to be cleaned out. Okay, and those who own properties, and if you get caught selling drugs out of a property that you own, we have nuisance abatement laws. We can take that property from you, even at the state level, under civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture. It's not happened. I'm going to make sure that it starts happening. 
Okay, and I have a question from Eddie. Yes, Mr. Vereen, do you believe the current state attorney has allowed the media to dictate her decisions as state attorney, and if so, how? I'm glad you asked that question. Recently, we had a press conference um, concerning the Bolivarians out of uh, Hialeah that were caught in possession of collectively 31 absentee ballots. Now, the current state attorney, of course, is facing off with me in the uh, August 14th election. And there's issue, and recently I wrote a letter to the governor, and the governor has received a letter concerning having a special prosecutor assigned to the investigation and prosecution of that uh, that case. Um, the women were not arrested. Now, there's a, there's a statute on the books, a local ordinance that says, well, it's not even local, statewide, that says a person is not allowed to be in more than two, uh, be in possession of more than two absentee ballots, okay? One could be a family member, one could be from somebody that has signed an affidavit giving that person uh, the right to possess and, you know, and turn in the absentee ballot. So the fact that these women were caught with 31, nine, one had 19, the other one had 12, uh, subjected them to being arrested for a misdemeanor. That has not happened yet because there's allegations that these women work for uh, somebody who's tied to her campaign. And the media is involved in this case, and they've been questioning her with regard to uh, whether or not this person works with their campaign and whether or not these, uh, that person has hired these women to work on their campaign. She refused to answer those questions. I sent a letter to the governor saying that there appears to be a conflict of interest and I asked for an independent investigation. It has not happened. The governor said he's going to hold off doing that until he has heard back from her concerning whether or not her investigation led them to believe that there's a conflict. But these women have yet not been arrested, even though there's probable cause to arrest them. The officers involved said that they were told by the state attorney's office not to arrest them, and they're furious about it. So we have this whole climate of corruption down in Miami-Dade County. One of the things that has happened... Uh, and I don't know if the media is driving it with regard to making, for her making her decisions, but what has happened is this. After having been there for so long, almost 20 years, she's made friends and enemies on both sides of the track. And so she has now been caught in so much politics that it has, I believe, has clouded her judgment with regard to doing what her job is, which is the prosecution of criminals and not getting caught up in the politics. Because I already told them, I said, I'm not, I'm not turning the blind eye to corruption. Because our climate in Miami-Dade County is just complete. You know, the, 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 the people who live in Miami-Dade County know that we have a problem. And we've become a laughing stock, you know, if you will, for, you know, for the whole, in the whole state of Florida and through the, throughout the country. They look at Florida as one of the most corrupt states right now based on how the presidency went down in the year 2000 with Bush v. Gore and, and Gore v. Uh, uh, Catherine Harris concerning the hanging chads and all of that. And so we have problems that we have to deal with uh, with corruption. And you know, my personal opinion is that the state attorney now has lost focus on what her job is and, you know, and she's just simply not doing it. Mr. Vereen, if you are elected the state attorney, when you and you take over, will the state attorneys in the intake division have discretion in making filing decisions, or will you or other staff be reviewing those decisions? Well, you know, there are some attorneys that I know are in the office. Um, I won't mention any names, but I know are very good at what they do. Uh, because over the years, over the past 17 years, have I ever had a problem with the filing of a case, um, prior to them filing the case, I've always been able to contact them and say, listen, you know, I'm asking that you look over this case. 
pre-file this case before you decide to just look at the affidavits that the police officers wrote and file information against someone. And what they have in turn asked me to do is present to them any evidence that I have that's to the contrary of what's been written in any report. And when I have done that, they have delayed uh, filing an information uh, until they've received it. Sometimes they receive it and they say, okay, Rod, I see what you're talking about, but I still think there's enough to file, so we're going to go ahead and file, you know, and then I can appreciate that, okay? But at least I knew that they took the time to inquire as to what it is that's causing me to feel a certain way uh, about a case, and they will take the time to look at it. Now, have I been able to get that through everybody? No. Does that mean that they're not good prosecutors that are in the intake division? No. What it means is that there needs to be some policy that defense lawyers and prosecutions have that have with regard to cases of controversies that the state attorney's office is asked to look at. And so my response would be to let defense lawyers know that upon your client being arrested, okay, and before an information is filed, and if you want to know when it is that the state attorney's office is going to pre-file a case or review a case, uh, you can call the office and find out, and if you have anything you want to present, okay, to the uh, to the screening uh, felony screening unit, okay, or misdemeanor screening unit, then this is the time to do it. And if you submit something to us that causes us to now second guess what's in a police report, then that means we need to bring the police officer in and pre-file it by asking the police officer to either dispel any notions that what he's had in his report is not accurate or to say was it whatever, whatever was presented is not accurate, okay? But at least it gives the defense lawyers an opportunity to prevent somebody from being arrested that may not deserve to be arrested um, or, you know, uh, clearing up any mis you know, misgivings about a certain situation. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if, if the state attorney reviews it and says we think that this is still sufficient even in light of, then the information will be filed. Mr. Vereen, Eddie has a question for you. Yes. Uh, Mr. Vereen, will the assistant state attorneys in the different divisions have the discretion to make independent decisions on plea bargains and how a case is prosecuted if you are elected? Well, let me just say this. With, the, with regard to the young ones, and I say young ones, but uh, concerning the uh, uh, the ones that start off in county courts, where they start them all off in county court, once you know they've gone through the proper training and they understand what it is that they're supposed to be doing, I think they should be given that discretion. I know that you know I've been in court sometimes with young prosecutors that say I can't do this without my division chief uh, uh, giving me the the a okay to do it, and. You know, it's frustrating because sometimes that causes a delay, and instead of cases being resolved that day, you have to reset it now for another day because the division chiefs are not in the courtroom when they need to be. I've sat around some time for hours waiting on the division chiefs to get in the uh, get into the courtroom, and it's frustrating. But there's just a limited number of them, and they're usually bouncing around from courtroom to courtroom. What I prefer to uh, to do is make sure that I properly train these uh, these prosecutors and give them that discretion with regard to how they handle, uh, you know, the plea bargaining process. Because my thing is this, as long as you can stand beside or behind your plea and there's a legitimate basis for doing it, because I know sometimes when you're there in court and you're supposed to go into trial, you may not have a witness there, which will cause the judge to just throw the case out and you say, listen, at least I got an adjudication credit time served on a case where we would not have even gotten adjudication because my witnesses didn't show. 
I can understand that because I've been there before, and that's legitimate, okay? If you know you got somebody that has violated the law, but they're hoping on the fact that somebody doesn't show, you don't have to play your hand and show your hand right then and there. The judges are usually, you know, more versed at, you know, body language, sign language. You know, they're looking at you like, okay, I know what this means, okay? Just for often adjudication, credit time, served. The person may say, you know what, that's fine. I've already been adjudicated at this before already. It's not going to bother me one way or another, but it still helps you, one, you know, get some type of justice because they didn't get away with it. And, you know, two, you didn't delay the system. And three, you know, the person didn't get away with it. And four, as far as Tallahassee is concerned, you got your stats. Okay, so, yeah, to answer your question, they will probably have, you know, the discretion to resolve, you know, certain cases. But those, you know, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, cases where there are victims that are screaming out for justice, you know, uh, even though, you know, the more seasoned prosecutors be able to go in and resolve a case without without having to come to me and say, this is what I want to offer. You know, when it comes to the, the younger prosecutors, I want the division chiefs to be involved in the decision-making process for them, just to make sure that they don't make a mistake and make sure that the victim has his or her day in court. Mr. Vereen, do you have any thoughts on the expansion of public nuisance laws that relates to the seizure of brothel houses and hotels used for trafficking purposes? Take them. That's my that's, that's, I can expect more than that. There's one thing I know. Listen, you hit somebody in the pockets, okay? You hit them in the pockets, they won't happen again. You get somebody who's who spent three or four hundred thousand dollars on a building, and you come in there and say your building is being seized from you, okay? Because of this fact, oh, you could best believe they're not going to let these buildings get away from them anymore. Uh, you know, my thing is if you can seize it, seize it. If you got a legitimate basis for taking it, you take it. And if the laws are not written, I haven't sat down and gone through all the news and David laws recently, but if the laws permit you to do it, you do whatever the law permits you to do. So if somebody is renting um, uh, property to someone who is setting up a brothel in that building, and you can prove that this individual had notice, that's all the law requires. You get your due process, due process requires notice. You want to come in and fight for it? Come in and fight for it. But if you have somebody that has been convicted of pimping, okay, uh, sex trafficking or any other offense, and they were able to get away with it to the extent that they think they can do it again and get away with it, because you know there are a lot of pimps out there working inside of buildings and hotels, you know, you take it. If the law allows you to and you can prove it to a jury, take it. I know Sarah has a question for you. If elected state attorney, will your office be easily accessible to the public who wish to file a criminal complaint? Yes, no doubt about it. What, let, let me tell you, it was, uh, and I'm glad you asked that question. When I was uh, first being vetted for uh, this position, I sat down with a gentleman by the name of Frank Rollison, who is a former firefighter in Miami-Dade County. And he and I sat down, and for about two hours, he asked me every question you could possibly ask anybody. And one of the things he complained about was the fact uh, that the state attorney is not accessible. And when he would go to the state attorney's office to try to speak with the state attorney and or a chief assistant, he was always given a runaround, and it would take forever. And then at the end of the day, he was not able to contact anyone with any decision-making authority, and nothing frustrated him more than that. Just, you know, since I've been running, I've been inundated with phone calls, with letters of one support, and many inquiring as to the same thing. Will you please be accessible or have someone in your office 
that can reach out to the public or the public can reach out to concerning issues that they have, you know, uh, nuisance, uh, laws, and things of that nature. And my response to that was yes. You know, because I was trained in a small office in Tallahassee, you know, there were probably 40 lawyers versus down in Miami-Dade County where there's 330, uh, that we had a closer relationship with the community. But in order to, you know, to help, if you will, uh, uh, control crime in the community, you have to be out there, okay? Because of the fact that I grew up out in these communities and everybody knows me, or at least a lot of people know me, they know how to, you know, how to get have, have access to me. Mr. Vereen? I don't plan on changing my phone number. Yes, ma'am. This is Linda, and we are coming to an end. So before I let you go, and I want to thank you for being on, can you quickly tell our listeners, other than getting out to vote on August 14th, very quickly, what do you want them to remember from you today? I want you to remember that Ryan Marine is a vehicle for change in the Miami-Dade County State Attorney's Office, that I have dedicated my life to justice and fairness within the criminal justice system, and I'm hoping that, you know, upon my election to this office, that I will be able to do exactly what my vision is, which is make Miami-Dade County a safer place for everyone to live and travel through. And... Um, you know, hopefully turn around the, the crime rate in our country, in our, in our community, and um, hope that I have everybody's support. Thank and you very much. 30, all right, my punch number 30 for anybody who want to tell the friends of Miami-Dade County to go out and vote for me. Punch number 30. Thank you. This is Linda Sullivan. Thank you for joining us on Your Best Voice Radio. We are here every Wednesday from noon to one. You've been listening to Best Stop Trafficking, Your Best Voice. Hosted by Linda Sullivan, Certified Master Coach for Victims of Human Trafficking. In fact, BEST stands for Building Empowerment by Stopping Trafficking. Specializing in aiding the victim to pursuing and prosecuting the trafficker. To reach BEST, call 305-728-5218. Or just go to beststoptrafficking.org. That's beststoptrafficking.org. The opinions expressed on the preceding sponsored program were strictly those of its hosts, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of this station, its staff, management, or sponsors.